Welcome to the Xterra Podcast. I'm Tom Patton. The Xterra mission is to explore and discuss the business of space and its effect on the national and global economy, as well as life on Earth. How does what happens in space affect your life every day? That's what we're exploring on the Xterra website, as well as on this podcast. Guest on this edition of the Xterra podcast is George Pullen, chief economist and co-founder of the Milky Way Economy. And George, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. I also appreciate uh, you reaching out, and of course, your your partner Mike doing all the legwork behind the scenes to get this going. Yeah, Mike. Mike is good at that, so we appreciate Mike doing all and, and so many other things that he does. George, tell us a little bit about yourself and and how did you get into the space economy? Sure, sure. Well, first thing first, I come from Maine. So I wasn't surrounded by a deep uh, NASA base as a child. I was more surrounded by science fiction and mm-hmm. sci-fi, um, but also a lot of entrepreneurs and business people that were in my family. Um, interesting tidbit, my parents' first date was actually to see a Star Wars movie. So you could say that I was destined for the space economy, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, but seriously, I, I think that <clears throat> the space economy, if you think about it, it's a combination of science fiction imagination, advances in technology, and it's all packaged together with a understanding of economic incentives. So I went to undergraduate at the University of Maine. Um, I started off working in a genetics lab and studying biology. I eventually turned to financial econometrics, which for folks who don't have economics as a background, it's basically business modeling with a whole bunch of engineering math. Um, and then, you know, I, I started to realize that, um, you know, the new science of genetic engineering was was fascinating, but just wasn't um, captivating my attention as much as other markets and other new and alternative systems. And so that's what kind of led me down the road of, of finance. I, I started trading out of my fraternity house. I ended up having a knack for it. Um, it did very well. Ended up, um, you know, leading that into a job with as a banker, um, an options broker, portfolio manager. An energy swaps trader, and I, you know, I did those roles for a few different banks and hedge funds. So, but but in terms of the space economy, the, the way I got to the space economy is, I remember very clearly sometime back in 2008, 2009, when NASA was first issuing their commercial resupply service contracts, and that was a that was a huge moment in my opinion for the space economy. And at the time, you know, I was a banker, so I was following uh, the business news and. Again, always have an issue in sci-fi and science and NASA. I was watching that as well. And I remember seeing SpaceX and Orbital. I think Orbital is part of North Grumman these days. But SpaceX and Orbital getting contracts for between $2 billion and $1.5 billion each. Mm-hmm. And um, if you remember, uh, back then, back in the 2000s, a billion still meant something. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> we might get into that later. But anyway, yeah. a billion with a B still meant something. And so it, it really captured my attention. Um, and so after a few years, you know, the conversation kept on moving along. Some people started talking about new space, although it's never been entirely clear to me what that term is defined as. What it appeared to mean is that a bunch of the existing primes, you know, Lockheed, Channel Dynamics, Boeing, et cetera, and a, a handful of billionaires, you know, Sir Richard Branson, Musk, Bezos, were getting servicing contracts mm-hmm. for the government, right? And that's that's not really new, um, but it was interesting. And so at the same time, you know, like most of you, I was probably, you know, 
watching Hawking and uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, love, love him. Mm-hmm. I can just watch him for hours on YouTube and I do. <laughs> um, and I realized that there was this gap between the two groups that you looked at, right? There was one group talking about space, science of space, the wonder of space and discovery. Um, and there's another group talking about the business activities of multi-billion dollar firms and billion dollar individuals. But no one was really talking about the space in between. Right. And I thought that's where the space kind of conversation needed to happen. And so that's what got me more and more interested in the space economy. So um, I started working into some of my courses that I teach. I started to draft it out in lesson plans, which then evolved into a book. Now, the space economy is starting to get really formally measured and analyzed. And as you contend in your book, Blockchain and the Space Economy, which you co-authored with Samuel Ellison, uh, Williams, rather, it all started with Claudius Ptolemy about 2,000 years ago. Make that connection for us. Well, well I thought that that was probably the most, um, <laughs> probably the most interesting way that I could explain this to people, right? Because if you look at many traditional views of when the space economy and, and space really took off, they're going to start citing back to Nazi V2 rockets. Okay. And I don't think that that is a good birth story. And you need to have a good origin story, right? I mean, right. think about all the Marvels and DC franchises. you got to have a good origin story or you're bound for a reboot. It's just how it works, right? <laughs> um, and let's not get into the Star Trek reboot, okay? But anyway, <laughs> you need a good origin story for a reboot, right? So anyway, so, um, but my point, my point is that if you look at Ptolemy, right? So he lived... 2000 years ago, sometime around 100 AD. And what he did is he created a model of the solar system that put the sun and stars and other planets revolving around the earth. Now, we know that's not true today, right? But it transformed chaotic celestial bodies into an ordered system, you know, an ordered geocentric system. And a belief in order is fundamental for humans who want to then go out and pursue economic efforts to manipulate it. And so, you know, our knowledge grew, you know, it wasn't just um, Ptolemy, you know, it was um, Asafi, it was obviously Copernicus. And, you know, as we kept on doing this, we kept on looking up and discovering more and realizing that no one was looking back at us. And it wasn't really until Adam Smith in 1776, we started getting these modern um, economic beliefs, a modern economic system that allowed us to um, explore commercialization. But, you know, it really all starts with Ptolemy, because he was the one who said, you know, A geocentric system has order, and through order, you can then have an effort to manipulate and control that order, and then, of course, that leads to economic incentives, and that that, that leads us to the space economy. And I I will say one other thing that kind of leads back to what I said earlier, which is, you know, we I talked a little bit about how that there was that gap between multi-billion dollar firms and billionaire individuals talking about the space economy, but no one's talking about the middle, which is what I like to talk about. And if you look at that middle, right, um, it hasn't always existed. And so commercialization, space economic thought, um, um, modern you know, economic systems of uh, capitalism allow for that middle to exist. But, but billionaires, inflation adjusted, billionaires, <laughs> <laughs> the wealthy, <clears throat> were sponsoring scientists and right. sponsoring astronomers and artists who were inspired by the space for centuries before, right? I mean, my, one of my favorite examples is the Leviathan at uh, Beer Castle in Ireland. And so the Leviathan was constructed at great expense. 
And it was the largest telescope in the world mm -hmm. for a good chunk of the 19th century, right up until the early 20th century for about seven or eight decades until, until it was actually placed by one in California. But that was all funded by, you know, the millionaire, multimillionaire billionaires of the day. And so their, their role in the space economy has always been present. George, there's a lot of money being invested right now in commercial space ventures, but is this the beginning of a bubble? We saw the dot-com bubble. We saw a real estate bubble. Is there a burgeoning space bubble that's coming our way? So it's a really good question, right? So I, I traded through the dot-com bubble. Um, I was an energy trader, so I've experienced energy, <laughs> energy booms and busts. Um, and of course, you know, we, we lived through the real estate bubble, which led to the great financial uh, crisis. And so, um, you know, oftentimes referred to the Great Recession. I, I think what's important to remember, I'm going to put on my, you know, Professor Pullen, you know, adjunct hat for a second here. I, I will say that if you look at each of those, what you see are uh, industries and sectors which were much larger as a percentage of the overall economy. So when you think about space and even space adjacent. So we talk about the large space economy, an industry versus an economy. We can get that maybe later, but um, it's not large enough today to have an impact on the overall economy. It is significant. It is important. I love talking about it. I know mm -hmm. you do too, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's not um, as large a percentage as say the banks were real estate was energy. Is. It's just, it's just not big enough. Right. So we could see individual assets come out of alignment with their pricing. But I don't think we have a risk of a bubble and certainly not a risk of a bubble that would impact a larger economy. But is there a parallel between, and I'm going to draw it to the dot-com bubble because of the, the speed at which the technology is changing. Um, is there a parallel with the dot-com bubble with what we're seeing right now in the commercial space industry? I think there are parallels with dot-com, but I don't think they are direct related to bubbles. So <clears throat> if you think about dot-com, and what happened was all of a sudden every business needed to have an internet presence. Right. And there were many businesses which were just internet companies in an internet industry. Remember when mm -hmm. internet was its own industry, right? Yeah. AOL, right? Mm -hmm. And an internet was its own industry. And that's kind of where we are today with space, right? People think about space as its own industry. Right. Sometimes when I talk about space economy, people kind of look at me funny. They're like, well, there's a space industry, but what are you talking about? Right. Well, in the same way, the initial stages that occurred with dot com and with the build out that we saw, there were these firms that were internet focused, they're internet companies. Mm -hmm. Today, though, every business is an internet business. Right. Right. Every business has an internet vertical. And so what I would say is that. The similarities aren't necessarily related to the bubble, but the similarities are related to how they can both grow mm -hmm. like a hockey stick because every business will potentially have a space vertical. And so there won't be space businesses. We'll just call them businesses. <laughs> <laughs> just like we don't call anyone an internet company anymore. I mean, right. even if you think about some of the most famous internet companies, you know, whether that be in today's age, you know, uh, like a Netflix or an Amazon, right? Mm -hmm. We think about Netflix as a streaming service that right. provides us with entertainment. We don't think about them as an internet company, right? But but their entire operation is enabled by the internet. I'm not even sure they have the the DVD version available anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and the same thing with like an Amazon, right? Mm -hmm. We would think about them as a online bookstore, 
Right. Right. That's where they started. But they're not. But who would call them an internet company today? Right. You you look at them as someone who pools merchandise and then is really in the business of shipping and receiving. That's the real business of Amazon. The other parallel that comes to mind is that is the is the foundation of the actual business because a lot of the dot com stuff was was based on what they called uh, appropriately vaporware, um, yeah. things that didn't really exist. Is that happening in the? I mean, there are so many companies that are trying to get involved in space commerce. Is there a lot of that vaporware, for lack of a better term, in the space industry, or is are, are the fundamentals more more sound? So I will not speak to the individual fundamentals of mm-hmm. any company. Uh, I won't get myself in trouble, right? But I I will say that um, you know an expression that I'll bring over from my um, you know my blockchain and crypto heritage is you know DYOR, right? Do your own research. Mm-hmm. There are definitely firms out there which are selling a package of goods which it doesn't seem likely they can deliver on. But but again, to be fair. We see that in a lot of industries. Mm. Um, I I think what's hard with the space industry and particularly the space economy is we think about our natural love for space, right? right? I I forget the exact polling data, but something like, you know, 80 plus percent of people have favorable views about space, space exploration, the activities of NASA and et cetera, right? And so if if you think about that, people have a natural affinity, a natural love for it. And so there will be people who are predatory, who mm-hmm. will take advantage of that, who will who will say things about their business which just are not achievable in the timeline in the timeline that they're telling you. Um, but I think that comes back to research and people making sure to, to kick the tires, as it were, um, before they participate in any kind of deal like that. In December of 2020, the Bureau of Economic Analysis published what they called the preliminary estimates of the U.S. space economy. 2012 through 2018, and the space economy by the numbers was pretty much flat. Technical technical advances now are lowering costs for space ventures. So has technical advancement happened so fast as to be deflationary for the space economy? <clears throat> so I I think we should be careful with a term like deflationary, um, but I think it's a good question, right? So if we think about the way costs can come down right. for the space industry, we can think about how you have economies of scale. So we can see this, for example, with SpaceX. They are doing far more launches. Mm-hmm. They are making far more rockets, and therefore they have economies of scale. So one of the fundamental things that we learn about in economics and I teach students is as you make more of something, you become better at it, and you can do so, you can make them cheaper. Right. So there's economies of scale for sure, because we have more activity than we used to have. We particularly see this when it comes to satellites and even in more specifically when it comes to nano or microsats, mm-hmm. that there are so many of them being made that their costs have come down. OK, so but costs coming down can also come to us because it because companies become uh, vertically or horizontally integrated. Right. So we can see this with firms like Maxar, right, where they have a large swath of space services that they provide, right? So they have a, a large integration across their platform that can also provide efficiencies in their business. But I don't I don't think we're at a point of, of deflation, right? When we think about classic deflationary um, technologies, a lot of times people cite um, you know, how expensive a phone is today mm-hmm. or how expensive a internet connection is today versus how expensive it was 
10 years ago, right? And, and people cite to a technology like that. But but keep in mind, if, if you want to, you can spend two grand on a phone, sure. right? And the new note is worth it, by the way. I'm not being paid by Samsung, but it's totally worth it. Um, <laughs> I'm an Apple guy, you, so that's... <laughs> okay, no, no hard feeling. Yeah. Some people are Apple people, I'm, I'm a Samsung guy. Um, but you... <laughs> But but you see that, right? That right. you can still pay up because the technology is also getting better. And so I, I don't think there's deflationary forces. I do think that there is efficiencies, there are cost savings, there's economies of scale, there's vertical and horizontal integration occurring. I don't think it's deflationary though. You're listening to the Xterra Podcast. I'm Tom Patton, and we're talking with George Pullen, chief economist and co-founder of the Milky Way Economy and author of the book, Blockchain and the Space Economy. On the flip side of that previous question, George, given the U.S. government's almost $4 trillion stimulus, will that be inflationary, and how could that affect the space economy? This is a good question, right? So um, as an economist, you know, I love the the FRED data, right, uh, St. Louis. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, federal data that anyone can look at, right? Just go uh, type in FRED data, and it'll come right up for you in Bing or Google or like to use DuckDuckGo. And... You can see that pre-pandemic, we had an M2, which is your money supply, mm -hmm. okay? We had an M2 around 50 and a half trillion. Right. Today, our M2 is around 19 and a half trillion, and that's today, and just to timestamp this, we're in April talking to each other. Right. <laughs> so so we could, it's probably gonna be more, um, but it's 19 and a half trillion, right? So that increase, when you you know do the divisor, you're in about 25% increase in the money supply. Right. A little over a year. Um, and I also think it's important because I, I made the joke earlier about, you know, back when I was a banker, a billion, you know, with a B meant mm -hmm. something. Um, and I think it's kind of worth repeating now. Um, when we're talking about a trillion, let's frame that, right? The entire GDP, the entire economy of the United States is somewhere between 20 and 22 trillion over the last few years. Right. Okay. 20, 22 trillion. And we're talking about increases in money supply of 4 trillion five trillion, maybe we'll even get up to six or seven trillion, right? Again, the entire GDP is 2022 trillion. Given that, I don't see how we don't have inflation. Right. I just don't. Now people will make arguments that, well, you know, you have to have a, a tightening labor market and we haven't seen that yet. I would argue that if you look at unemployment statistics, especially as they break down by sector, you can see that um, a vast majority of the employment is located within very specific sectors, and that there is actually a tight labor market in others. We will probably see the not too distant future is changes in wages in the sectors that are tight versus the ones that have a lot of, we call it slack, right? right? Of openings. Um, you know, we also don't have businesses all the way open right now. Right. So it's hard to say exactly how much contraction or expansion we'll see in sectors that have been really adversely impacted by, um, you know, pandemic response, lockdown, the pandemic, however you want to rephrase it, right? And I see that translating into inflation. Now, does that mean I'm predicting runaway inflation next year? No, I'm not. Okay. Um, it, it's very likely that we try to leave it at a measured pace, right? And maybe a measured pace means 4%, maybe it means 6%. Um, maybe it gets away from us. Maybe it goes back to double digits. I mean, in our lifetimes, there was double-digit inflation, sure. right? We, we've seen that. Um, so it so it can happen again, and it can happen again here. So um, it it would be wrong to not put it on your radar when you're thinking about risks. And so I think about 
<clears throat> what that means for the space economy, this is how it relates back, is when you think about investments in businesses mm -hmm. that create things, right? Then they're selling a product that they can also rise prices on, right? right? And so they can have a bit of inflation protection. There are other parts of the economy where you have much less inflation protection. So it is um, completely within the realm of possibility that if we do see inflation, just normal inflation or slightly above normal inflation, to try to soak up some of this extra 25% of bills we have sloshing around. And of course, it's all electronic ones and zeros. Right. Um, but anyway, if you, if you think about that, then it says, okay, well, what, what parts of the economy, what industries can, can raise prices? Space can raise prices. Sure. So it, it seems like also a sector that will have some inflation protection. It does seem like the space economy is one of those where it, it, people are really interested in it, but it, it it's if if it, the costs of launches go up, it's not really going to affect what you pay for a pound of hamburger at the grocery store. Right, right. It's it's the the, the cost of launch goes up, and now your uh, GPS service or your cable service or perhaps your um, better coverage on your phone service has to go up by fractions of pennies. Right, it's, mm -hmm. you, can, you can spread the cost around much easier and it doesn't exactly it doesn't affect the price of hamburger at the store right that that relates more back to energy prices which we right. talk about every time but <laughs> that's a whole that's as they say that's another show <laughs> yes yes we, george, we can even talk about solar arrays at that point right yeah george there are a lot of startups and budding entrepreneurs who want to get financing for their companies and traditionally that's been an angel investor uh, venture capital uh maybe a, a buyout or that holy grail, the IPO. Are there other means of financing a startup in the early stages of a space company? Yes. So when you think about your traditional pathways, you've named several of them. Um, the other ones are family and friends, right? And this is what we see with most, with most startups, right? And, and I'll make this more broadly speaking about, um, any industry, but this is also germane to space. But we see that most startups um, acquire between fifty and two hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of capital to get through their initial years. Um, a large percentage of companies actually fail in their first five years. But they fail because of a lack of capital. They don't necessarily fail because of lack, a lack of market, a lack of good product or service. That's not why they're failing. They're failing because of lack of capital right. because it's really hard to access the angel, the VC capital, or even traditional banking capital. Um, when you're in that first period of growth and you're looking for that 50 to $250,000. What people should be aware of is that there's been changes in the rules around how companies can raise money, right? You can always go out and raise money from family and friends. You can always go out and raise money from accredited investors and accredited investors is a defined term in finance. Um, what's new since the Jobs Act of <clears throat> What's new since the Jobs Act is now you can raise money from the crowd. So this is called investment crowdfunding. Right. With investment crowdfunding, you can raise up to $5 million. It actually just changed this year. It used to be around one. Um, you can now raise up to $5 million from your crowd. So say you are a space entrepreneur. You have been in business for two, three, four years. Um, you've had great growth during that time period. Maybe you've secured some contracts or some subcontracts, uh, maybe some design work or what have you. Mm -hmm. And you would like to go out and let all of your 
fans, your supporters, your, you know, your LinkedIn, your Twitter followers, whatever it is, know that you're raising money, right? right? There's a compliant way to do that through Reg SIA and, and raise funds to keep your business growing. Um, the other way is called Reg A plus and a Reg A plus raise, that's up to 75 million. That's what the plus stands for. The plus is that it's not just in credit, accredited investors, it's also your community. So that doesn't have to be an accredited investor, you know, someone who makes over 100,000 or has over 100,000 worth of network. It can be um, just regular business customers of you and your business. So that really changes things because that's a new capital and financing tool mm-hmm. that space and space adjacent technology companies can target. Are there, are there starting to be more ways for people to invest overall in, in those kinds of things? You talked about reggae, which is, is, is um, a fairly new product on the market for lack of a better term. Is that something that you're going to, we're going to see more and more people turn to as um, maybe money gets tighter and they, and they look for creative ways to finance their businesses? Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, Reg Reg A has been around for a while, but Reg CF is definitely very new. Mm -hmm. And so I think if we look at Reg CF, it's, it's not even five years old. Um, If we look at it right now, there are, there are space and technology companies um, out there raising money. I mean, this is, this should be when I give you a disclaimer, right? So um, Milky Way Economy is actually an investor in a Reg CF platform. And so the Reg CF platform's name is Bright.us, uh, Investment Crowdfunding Fund Bright, mm-hmm. B-R-I-T-E. And Bright.us has an entire space and technology vertical, right? And so it is um, actively looking for people to come onto their platform and mm-hmm. raise money for their space and space technology adjacent businesses. And uh, this is something that we're going to see more and more of because it goes back to the idea that like you said, you know, there's their traditional pathways mm-hmm. through angels and VCs or buyouts, but then there are these new mechanisms. And as companies become more and more aware of them, we'll see more and more companies accessing them. Um, and you already know this, but you know, the space community, we're tight, right? Yeah. Everyone, everyone kind of knows someone or knows one degree of separation from everyone else. Right. And so as you see um, a few startups really gain traction with this type of funding and this type of way to grow their business, I think you're going to see a groundswell and you'll see more and more companies interested in doing this. That provides me with a perfect segue to have you talk about Milky Way economy and how it helps ventures starting up or even established businesses in the space economy. Sure. So we provide consulting services, economic analysis, business analysis, planning and consulting. Um, we also provide educational services and tools. So we do a lecture series um, at Columbia in their summer course. Uh, we also have a number of other universities that we're talking to about launching space economy courses for them. Um, some of the course is based on a book, but I know that, uh, that Mike said, I read some of it, so I'll just, <laughs> so I'll just say, you know, uh, that was conversational. That's right. how the book is set up. It's supposed to be accessible. Um, the materials for the classes have been adapted. So we're also looking at a textbook of that fashion. But so we provide those services to space businesses and space adjacent technology businesses. And I think it's important that I clarify what that means because if you think about something like the NASA technology transfer program, right? Mm-hmm. Um, NASA is literally sitting on trillions of dollars when you patent an IP. Right. And if you want to be part of the technology transfer program, that doesn't mean that you have to be a rocket scientist, right? It means that you have to go out, have a business proposal and capital to access 
one of those patents and how you're going to put it into an actionable business strategy mm-hmm. and then off you go. Right. So we, we also help firms technology transfer. I think when you look at what all these firms have in common is they're all part of the larger space economy, right? So not just the space industry, like, you know, launch and satellites, right? We're talking about space economy. So these are people who are taking space technologies and moving them over to other sectors of the industry, right. uh, excuse me, other sectors of the economy as well. Are there particular criteria you look for in companies that you advise? Yes. So we have, um, <clears throat> we usually do a series of uh, screenings and then we do an intro meeting mm-hmm. before we uh, take on a new company as a client. Uh, one of the things is we don't necessarily need them to be already in business for a few years, although it definitely helps. Right. Um, it is depending on where the company is looking to be business ready, right? They're looking to be involved with a technology transfer, maybe they're already secured technology transfer. If they're looking to secure a grant or research funding, or perhaps they've already secured the grant or research funding. So it really depends what step of the process they're in as to how we can best service them and help them out. But we go through a screening process first to make sure that we can provide the service that they need for their startup or for their medium-sized business in business in the future. George, we're almost out of time, but I want you to gaze into your crystal ball out to, let's say, 2035, and tell us what's your prognosis and predictions for the space economy. Um, I think that people are underestimating how large the space economy could be by the 2030s. I think that as humans, we have a tendency to think in linear terms. And I think that is something that we will always struggle with, but I encourage folks to think about the exponential potential that space technology, space businesses, the space industry, the overall space economy has. Um, You know, you cited earlier to some of the, um, some of the the government statistics that recently come out around the size of the space economy. And a lot of times the number um, gets put in the the range of $300 billion, right? If you think about what the potential is for exponential growth, even a 10X would mean a $3 trillion economy sometime in the 2030s, right? I could be wrong, right? We could still have linear growth, but but I would encourage people to think about what exponential growth could mean. I also would point them toward our history of space growth Mm -hmm. and space innovation. A lot of times it has been led by nation states. Now we have a landscape where we have many new nation states participating in the space mm-hmm. economy and the space industry. We also have um, small and large, right? So this is everyone from UAE to China participating, right? Some of these um, smaller companies, have, uh, sorry, smaller countries have very ambitious goals mm-hmm. for the moon and for Mars. I think all of this action on the part of government is also just going to continue to seed the actions of firms that can both service those government contracts, but also service commercial contracts. I think it is extremely reasonable to think about a future where we have multiple firms with space-based research, right? Private ISSs, right? I think it's also extremely likely we look at tourism in space um, to move from where it is now we're talking about several tens of millions of dollars to mm-hmm. participate down to something that is in the hundreds of thousands of dollars to participate. Um, this is obviously something that 
know, Branson is working on right. um, for himself, where they have that their brief period of time in orbit. But I'm talking about more up until Leo, right? And so if you look at all these factors together, both the interest in space scientific research from firms, whether that be for manufacturing or advanced pharmaceuticals, you look at the idea of, of space tourism taking off and the economies of scale around that to make perhaps entire space hotel stations or um, them to be connected to some of these research facilities or the ISS or others. You, you really see a very vibrant future for Leo. And that's before we even talk about the moon. And that's not, I didn't even yeah. say the word Martian. <laughs> so, so, so I think if you're looking just out to the 2030s, so, mm-hmm. you know, 10 plus years, I think it's a bright future. And I encourage people to think exponentially about the potential. How does the, um, access the the increasing access to space and i'm thinking about spacex and blue origin and and private companies who are taking the role of what used to be an exclusively government role in building the rockets that will get people and products and things into space i think it well first of all it lowers the cost of entry Mm -hmm. right and that's very important and when you have a lowering cost of entry, you have a diversification of participants. This is really important. We actually we actually see this with some of the advanced manufacturer facilities and some of the advanced manufacturing subcontractors that service NASA and we can and service ESA and others. We can use that as a proxy to, to think about what that means. So, um, some of these firms make very very specific three D printed parts out of materials that are very specifically only purposed for the, the larger aerospace or the space sector, right? These same firms also have terrestrial capacity right. to make advanced component parts for uh, medical devices and advanced component parts for race cars, right? And so what you see is, is businesses that can have this diversification of exposure where space becomes just one of their verticals because there's so many more people participating. It becomes part of becomes part of a lot more companies' business. And that that diversification also does what diversification always does, spreads risk around more and more folks, right? If your entire business is servicing a NASA contract or getting a NASA grant or an ESA um, award, that business is is single source dependent. Right. That is not a long-term viable economic or business strategy, right? If however, what you're doing includes these elements mm-hmm. as the base grows, as it diversifies, as more countries and more individuals are participating, that just gives you a new cash flow stream for your business. And that's that's a win for everybody. George, thank you so much. It's been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you, Tom, and say hi to Mike for me. I See will do that. That's going to do it for this edition of the Xterra Podcast. You can find us on the web at xterrajsc.com and be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at xterrajsc. Until next time, I'm Tom Patton. Thanks for listening.